What's up, guys? Welcome back to Mission Accomplished. I'm Michelle Carre. I'm not Michelle Carre. And this is episode three. We are so thrilled to have you back. First of all, before we dive in, just want to say a quick, huge thank you to everyone who subscribed to our YouTube channel, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening. We had over 80,000 streams, downloads, slash views on the first week. We were charting on iTunes. Super overwhelmed and thankful for the response and glad you're joining us for the next week. Hey. In celebration, today I am wearing my Nicolas Cage shirt. Sadly, only visual the visual <laughs> listeners will get to enjoy this. If you're not watching on YouTube, I'm really sorry. It is quite the t-shirt, it's let me just say. It's spectacular. It uh, might never leave your memory if you see it. Today we just learned that Nicolas Cage <laughs> will be playing Joe Exotic in the Tiger King TV series. That's big news. It's by the creators of American Vandal. Super exciting. So I'm pumped for that. And that is completely unrelated to today's topic, which is a highly, highly requested topic from you guys. Just what I wanted to do in this episode is dive in a bit further into some of our own missions that we've accomplished. In the course of this podcast, we're hoping to showcase a lot of different people from different backgrounds, but because of quarantine, we're going to start with what we know best. So this might end up being a two-part episode, but what we're going to do in this episode is lay down, fully explain, and share with you our journey to having a successful YouTube channel of over 2 million subscribers. There are a lot of people who ask me and DM me all the time, how did you become a YouTuber? How did you grow? How did you gain a following and find your niche? And what we hope to do in these next couple episodes, and what we hope to do here, <laughs> Jesus Christ, Sorry. Garrett is just showing off this Nick Cage it's shirt. Cool. I just, look at, look I can't, I can't. Look. Oh my god! Look at oh this! My god. Look how crazy this is! Look, someone that's... please screenshot this and tweet it at Nick that's Cage. Nicholas Cage is a cat. <laughs> okay. And a baby. All right. So, so what we hope to do in these next couple episodes is really answer a lot of your questions. It goes all the way to the back. Oh, look at that! It's it's the Mona Lisa Cage. And share some insight on how we did it. Cool. So. Disclaimer before we start, there are millions of different ways to become successful on YouTube. But this is the only <laughs> way. Oh my God. We're going to be sharing what we know because I think we have a really unique perspective. Um, I feel like as I was thinking about how different people grow on YouTube, there are a couple different avenues. The first one is like, the first one is your bad baby. It's like, someone goes viral becomes a meme and then their career Bad starts baby yeah what's that the dr phil girl oh cash me outside okay oh. so i would say category one and you know there are infinite categories but when i was thinking about this i was thinking there's category one which is someone who unexpectedly goes viral overnight success overnight success and instantly grows millions of followers and gains a career from that i would say the second category are sort of your groups of people who have really been diligently working on growing their following since they were very young so when i think of these types of successes i think of alicia marie i think of my life as ava people who really started on youtube a while ago and have been steadily growing 
and and growing their business and community. Then I would say the third category is someone who has been famous on another platform beginning their own. So for example, that could be kids who were on Disney Channel or Nickelodeon starting their own Instagrams, YouTubes, like Noah Schnapp from Stranger Things has become big on YouTube and TikTok. Jake and his, Paul from Disney to YouTube. Well, he sort of did Vine, Disney, then YouTube. Mm. But yes. So I would say like that's sort of the third category is someone who gets famous on another show or platform. So your reality TV shows, um, your Love is Blind, Cameron and Lauren, those kinds of people who get exposure on... I love Cameron and Lauren. Yeah, I do. Okay. Like Cameron's <laughs> Instagram is hilarious in a bad way. Oh my way. God. If you guys watched Love is Blind, you know... But there aren't there aren't winners of Love Is Blind, but Cameron and Lauren won Love Is Blind. Let's be honest. Cameron, I I love them. I love them both to death. But Cameron's posts are so funny because they are so clearly staged, like trying to be an influencer. <laughs> he, he posted this really funny photo where he was like at an empty cafe, writing on a legal pad, in a suit, in a suit, and it was like, who's been journaling during quarantine? You know one, what? No I one love him. in quarantine I is going to him. a coffee shop in a suit. We're in quarantine. No one's sure. going to a coffee sure, shop sure, in sure. a suit to journal on a legal pad. Garrett is very passionate about this. I saw this post and I... Give him some slack. He's an AI scientist. So I would say that's the third category. Someone who gets famous on one platform uses it to, um, and uses it to grow their own. So if you had to place us in one of those three categories, where would you put us? I would say that we are category three, admittedly, because I worked at BuzzFeed and had a little bit of a following when I was there. And some of those people transferred over to my channel when I left. I think that within all three categories, everybody works their ass off to be successful. Everybody encounters a lot of the same problems. Um, and... I'm excited to share more of our story and how we got here. So first, I, I wanted to talk about how we each found YouTube, why we didn't start YouTube in high school like a lot of people do. And I think my first experience with YouTube was Lily Singh. I followed her for a really long time and thought what she was doing was really cool because she's Indian and I admired a lot of the work that she did. How did you find YouTube? I I was on YouTube around when YouTube first launched. So I was watching Smosh with, with the Pokemon, their Pokemon video, and Mr. Boxman and the Easy Step, like all of their old classic videos. I, I watched Lisa Nova. I watched Shane back in the day. I mean, this, this was the cast of people who... Um, were around from the beginning of YouTube. I watched a lot of YouTube and I also tried to make a lot of YouTube. So I made a lot of videos with my neighborhood friends, with my school friends. Some of those got like hundreds of thousands of views. Surprisingly, yes. <laughs> I made like a Super Smash Brothers in real life parody video and that hit like a couple hundred thousand views. So I was making videos in the late 2000s after YouTube launched. I wasn't trying to be a YouTuber. 
I was just, that was my form of storytelling. I love making visual content and I have done it from a very young age. So I was putting it out there not to be a YouTuber, but just because I enjoyed it. It was content I wanted to watch. And I think that's a good rule of thumb when making content is always make something that you would want to watch. Don't make it for someone else or for another audience. And I think that's where um, a lot of people fell, fall short is trying to please an audience that they are not even a part of. Yeah. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, we can get, get into that a little later. But um, so that that's kind of what I started with YouTube. And then it wasn't until like 2012, 13, I started to get into like your Freddie W, your Corridor Digital, the YouTube channels that were based on filmmaking, Film Riot, Indie Mogul. I was, uh, you know, I was planning to go to film school in college. So I watched a lot of content about how to make movies, how to tell stories. Um, and that's that's where my uh, initial interest began. I, on the other hand, didn't really encounter YouTube too much growing up. I don't know why. So I find I, that really strange because it was such a big part of my childhood, but you like didn't watch YouTube? I didn't subscribe to anyone or follow anyone except... But you watched it. It existed. Like, the occasional Lily Singh video, mainly in college. I knew it existed. I like... when When memes were happening... I, you know, would get sent YouTube videos. I watched music videos there, but I didn't actively go to the website to seek out content in the way a lot of people did. I don't know why. I also didn't play video games growing up, so I'm kind of like they're wrong. I'm an outlier to the population. So if you didn't grow up with YouTube, what sucked you into this world? Because you worked at BuzzFeed, which is a like digital powerhouse on this platform or at least was and still is in many ways what got you here so in high school i was really active in my theater club i did science fair i um did model un i did all of these different clubs and activities but secretly was really passionate about performing but I think just coming from my background and being a person, a Leo, who's very type A and holds on to security in a certain way, I was scared to pursue acting in college. And instead, I actually ended up creating my own major, which I think is interesting because I sort of have made this career of being a jack of all creeds. I've sort of made this career being a jack of all trades and it started in high school when I, you know, committed to so many different clubs and organizations, but I committed fully 104%. And then in college, I didn't want to pick one of the majors, so I created my own. And then now I sort of try everything, but I've become a master of that. So I just think that was interesting. I hadn't really thought about that before. Jack of all trades, master of none. Yes. I feel like we're inching towards becoming... You know, I, I strive to become a master of making the videos we make, which is interesting. I like that perspective. Yeah. So in college, I took a couple acting classes, but I didn't major in it because, again, I, I felt like when I left high school and went to college, it was like real life starts now. I was very academic. See, I was the exact opposite where 
when I was in high school, I knew I couldn't do anything else other than make videos. And so, or at least wasn't good at anything else, good enough not to make a career out of it. So I made my plan A, which was go to film school and make movies or films or videos. And no plan B. No, no plan B. If I didn't make it, well, that sucks. And my mentality was... I have to make it because I have no other backup. I don't have an option, which made me... You're really good at that, though. And that's something I appreciate about you, which sounds... What you're describing sounds scary. I scare myself into succeeding. (laughs) But kind of you do, too. Like, you take all of your videos based on fears, you know? Yeah. Like, you succeed based... You you use fear to succeed. Sure. We have a similar interest. (laughs) That's cool. So in college, I designed my own major, which allowed me to do a lot of really cool things. What was your major called? My major was called Digital Media and Technology, and it was sort of a combination of journalism, computer science, animation, a little bit of film, basically communication in a way. What kind of jobs would come of that? Like, I'm just trying to take all of those concepts. Okay, so that makes sense. Yeah, so to give an idea of the types of internships I did in college, I interned at Google. I interned on a film set. I interned for Steve Carell's production company. I interned at DreamWorks in their marketing department for their animated films. So throughout college, I had a lot of really interesting professional experience within the entertainment industry, as well as Google, which is ironic because now I still technically work for Google. Um, But I'm really thankful for those experiences because they gave me a level of professionalism that I don't think a lot of other people get to experience. And I don't think I would have had if I had been someone who went viral when they were 15 and and whatnot. I feel like I can enter a lot of our production and professional meetings with a different perspective than social media stars who have never had a day job. I mean, I literally worked at Google, which owns YouTube, at a desk before I was a creator. I don't know many people that have that experience, which is pretty cool. There seems to be a high correlation with creators or influencers that are very highly successful with their amount of business, maybe experience or background or at least education um, in certain fields. Obviously, you'll always have your idiot who makes it super far and gets (laughs) a lot of followers for doing nothing or because they're attractive, most likely. But then they're still pretty smart, I guess. They still did it. Yeah, I mean, hey, that's true. I mean, and this is me not criticizing those pathways, you know, because those are, sure, those are are fine. Um, I I, I guess I was just more pointing out, often you can look at an incredibly successful creator and say, oh, it's because they're also a successful business person. And I think there's a lot of overlap there. I think a great example are the Try Guys. They are very successful on YouTube, but also I think they are successful business owners. Like 
They know they're running a, a very successful business. And I think a lot of people also forget that being a creator is a lot more than just uploading pictures of themselves and making videos on YouTube. The whole business aspect is so heavy and we can get in all that later. We will, yes. But like an actual day is like for a creator on YouTube. Yes. I guess my point was I really value my internships in college that I had because, for example, at Google, when you're a new employee there, and I just worked there for the summer, they have an entire orientation on how to use all of the Google Suite products. So Gmail, Google Drive, Google Calendar, all of those things. And it sounds a little tedious, but I would say that a lot of our success in a way has been because I'm able to write a good email as we discussed in episode episode one or function in Google Calendar or set up an organized Google Drive. Being organized is huge. I will say the biggest compliment we get, mostly because of Michelle, is how organized we are as uh, as, uh, as business partners, as, uh, as just life partners. But like a lot of brands that we work with come back and say, you are the most organized influencer I have ever worked with. Thank you for being on top of your shit. That goes a long way. And I think a lot of that came from your, well, type A personality, but from your training at yeah. some of those internships. And that's why I think for a long time, I, I was always frustrated because I was like, why couldn't have I just been someone who went viral in high school and uh, be younger in, in my experience, I guess. And now on the other side of it, I'm so thankful for those professional experiences. So I guess one of my first pieces of advice is to use everything to your advantage. Use all of your experience to your advantage. There were so many times in high school, in college, and even now that I am criticized for not choosing one thing and and going super hard at that. Like, And I'm really thankful that I knew, know how to do a lot of di different things. And again, that's my profession now. I've made a profession out of that when so many people were critical of me for that. Um, because I do think it is possible to be good at lots of different things. I'm going to look this up. There's a full, the, the Jack of all trades, master of none. There's more to that, right? Yeah. Okay, hold on, hold on. I'm looking it up. The complete saying is, now this is interesting. A jack of all trades is a master of none, but oftentimes better than a master of one. That's what I'm talking hmm. about. That's what I'm fucking talking about. Very interesting. <laughs> and I, I think it's really interesting because in high school and college, I was such a nerd. I, I studied for the SAT for like nine months. I, I was just like a major, major nerd. So, and really into science, really into math. And all of those things still help me today. I hate math <laughs> i after high school i swore that i would never take a, another math course for the rest of my life i was successful no more math oh my god okay don't take math oh do not listen to garrett i i i, I that see i think that's where we like compliment each other really well because I'm you're good at math at, and she's great oh at math. my god no because because i'm very procedural um, and I know like a lot of people listening to this are going to be 
thinking about, well, how can I apply a lot of this to my life? So I'm trying to think of procedures to success. I'm so impulsive and I just like get a big idea. I'm like, let's execute it right now. But when you, when you have an idea, you're, you're also procedural as well. Sure. But I think a lot of that is like, I have this big idea and I'm like, I need to do this right now. And I just jump in head first. And then you were like, okay, cool. But let's do this, this, and this, and it will be better because of the order that we do it in. And like, let's be very precise about it. I would say you're really good at being creative. I mean, both of us are and bringing the know-how of a traditional film set to what we do. And I'm more like the producer able to execute make things happen and fluent in the digital world like i from my background at BuzzFeed, i yeah. watched it as a v- audience member but i never was in the in the driver's seat creating it until now right um, yeah and then and then even at, in college i mean i was involved in a lot of things i was in a sorority for a period of time i was on the ultimate frisbee team for a period of time i was on the cycling team you know, MKBHD is an ultimate frisbee I player. Know. Meaning, if you want to be a successful YouTuber, gotta play frisbee. Play frisbee. I would say we kind of gave a broad overview of what we did in high school and college. You were very focused on filmmaking and the traditional side of filmmaking, going to film school, making short films. A lot of Garrett short films won tons of awards. You don't have to say that, but thank you. Whereas I uh, was more academic more scared to pursue the entertainment industry head on in the way that I wanted. And in doing so, found myself in a lot of tech slash behind the camera positions. For example, at DreamWorks, I was in their marketing department. So I learned all about marketing for a huge animated multi-million dollar film. That was really cool. And I, I think what I did was I sort of told myself, Well, pursuing being on camera is too risky, so I'll satisfy myself by doing this thing that's a more stable job, and maybe I'll get some satisfaction there. But I wasn't fully satisfied. So I think that sort of brings us to after college, what we did. So I was still living in my hometown of Pittsburgh after college, editing for a post house, uh, and then I got... Uh, uh, an opportunity to move out to LA with my one of my best friends from college at the time, Kevin, who actually shoots almost all of our challenge accepted videos with me. And I moved to LA, moved out with him, room was his roommate, and then we got a job together for a producer named Chris Moore. Chris Moore was the producer of Goodwill Hunting, uh, the American Pie series, Manchester by the Sea very prolific producer and he wanted to make a documentary about the world of skincare and how toxic chemicals are all over our skincare products and how toxic a lot of those products can be when you're putting them on your skin over the course of your entire lifetime right and now you're very passionate about all of those things. Very passionate about it because of that documentary. But what's interesting is I've always done narrative film up until that point. And this was the first time I was working on a documentary. and that like ex- a full-scale doc. Like it was going to be a feature It was going to be a feature-length documentary, a few million dollar budget. Um, and we were able to bring a lot of my college friends on the team. And we were all working together. It was really, really fun. And that's when I fell in love with documentary filmmaking. Now, cut to now, we are making these 
mini docs essentially for every episode of Challenge Accepted. And that's where I got most of my experience from, was from working with Chris Moore on that documentary. I, on the other hand, had a different experience where throughout my senior spring of college, which I'm sure a lot of you guys are in or finishing up at this point, I was applying to a lot of jobs that I thought would be a safe way into the industry. So ad agencies, design firms, I applied to Disney Imagineering and got quite far in the in the application process and one day I got a phone call from them and they're like we can't take you on a lot of our department got laid off so it was sort of like one crazy thing after another I applied to a lot of tech firms like Yelp um and I would either nothing was really lining up in the way that I wanted to I would get really close to getting a job which is so hard to do first of all when you're just out of college Major props to anybody going through that right now. I would get so close to sealing the deal on a job and then something would fall through. So I actually ended up moving home for the summer and my sister and I would just make YouTube videos together. So we did a YouTube channel called Helmet Head, which was about this character riding a bike. I don't really want to go into it because it's so embarrassing. But this was also around the time when I was gaining success as a cyclist. Um, For those of you who don't know, for a period of time, I was on a pro cycling team. So I was sort of over that summer racing and also prepping to apply to pro teams after college. And I had been watching a ton of BuzzFeed. And this was sort of around the time that BuzzFeed was really growing and gaining a lot of traction as this really cool place where you could have a part of a YouTube channel, be a part of a YouTube channel, but have a nine to five job and a steady paycheck. So I pretty immediately was really excited about that and I applied to be an intern there. Someone I knew from college was working in their New York office, not on the video team, but I reached out to him and and we had a phone call and he, I believe like, you know, at a lot of companies you can suggest people for specific jobs. So he did that for me. I'm being fully transparent here with how I, you know, got these opportunities. And I got the job at BuzzFeed as an intern. And the the story for how I applied for that job though is kind of crazy because here's what happened so I was on the east coast at a race I think it was like in September that I applied so I it was a couple months after I graduated and I was at a race and the recruiter emailed me asking if I could come in for a last minute interview on Monday for the job and I didn't live in LA and I was so scared to tell them that I didn't live in LA, that I just said yes. And I took all of my savings and bought a round trip ticket to LA, flew there from the race on the East Coast, did the interview and flew back in the same day. It was crazy. And I remember being on the plane back, feeling pretty good about the interview and being like, what the heck did I just do? I just flew across the country for this opportunity to be an intern, not even a full-time position. Was it paid? It was paid, Okay, but it was an internship. Mm-hmm. Do you get what I'm saying there? Mm-hmm. 
So I I kind of ended that and, and was a little terrified because I had just spent, you know, a couple hundred bucks, which was, you know, a lot of money for someone just out of college for this opportunity. And thankfully, I got the phone call and I got it. And within a week or two, I moved out to L.A. with a couple of my friends from Dartmouth, my college. And then I started working there. And when I was at BuzzFeed, I was there for a little over two years. And within that time, I went from intern to fellow to junior producer to video producer. And throughout that time, I really learned everything that I know now about online video making. It was pretty much your crash course in how to make it YouTube, really was how to make viral I didn't go to film YouTube school. videos. I didn't know anything. I didn't, I didn't really know how to operate a camera. I didn't know how to operate the Zoom, the mics, every anything. So, and I was one of only two people that they hired at the time who didn't go to film school in my intern class, Interesting I should say. Interesting story. Who specifically hired you at BuzzFeed? Oh my gosh, this is so funny. Ned from the Try Guys hired me, guys. Ned Fulmer. So you can thank Ned thank for hiring you, Ned, Michelle. For hiring me. I remember so specifically, oh my God, I don't think I've ever said this publicly, but there was a point of the interview where Ned was like, yeah, and what part of LA do you live in? And I flat out lied to him. I just said, I live in Hollywood. I didn't. I didn't live in LA. I was getting on a plane in a few hours to go back to the East Coast. And he doesn't know that that was just I don't a blatant think he knows. lie. I don't think he knows. I feel so bad. Fake it till you make it. I'm being so brutally honest here. That's what this is That's all about. That's what this is all about. Everyone's just a liar. We're all liars okay. here. Okay. Lie your way to the top. No. It's the only way to have success. I will say, though, I knew that if I got the job, I would be able to move to LA and I had a plan for that right, to be right. there before the job started. So, you know, it wasn't the truth at the time, but I was prepared to do what was needed. I'm embarrassed about this. Okay, moving on. So again, at BuzzFeed, I that's where I really learned how to do everything. It was sort of like graduate school for YouTube in a way. Um, and it was fascinating being there because they had classes on how to make a thumbnail, how to optimize your title and, and whatnot. We're and still bad at thumbnails. <laughs> That's something we struggle with. Don't take our thumbnail advice. We can't figure it out. We need Mr. Beast to like teach us a class I know. on thumbnails. I mean, it's crazy. But yeah, I what I really liked there is because I'm a person, as an athlete, I, I respond really well to being on a training plan. As someone who's very type A, I respond well to schedules and advice and a specific path to success. And BuzzFeed, in a lot of ways, answered a lot of those questions for me about YouTube because I felt like when I was just making YouTube videos for fun the summer prior, we we were just kind of like making guesses at how to do things. And a lot of YouTube is that. The internet is a lot of guessing. But BuzzFeed really helped me understand the analytics and the back end and like why a video does well versus doesn't well and how to make an idea do well on YouTube versus Facebook versus another platform. So I really, really appreciated my experience there. Also, when I got the job at BuzzFeed, I around the same time, 
got offered a contract to race professionally for the BMW women's team. So my life was I would work at BuzzFeed Monday through Friday, long hours because it's making videos and filmmaking. And every morning I was getting up at 5 a.m. to train on the weekends. If I wasn't also getting up at 5 a.m. to train, I would get on a plane at LAX, fly somewhere in the world, do a race, and then fly back on Sunday night and do it again all over. I didn't really have a weekend for a really long time. (laughs) And after, so I did that for an entire year as I was just grinding super hard at BuzzFeed as well as working really hard on being an athlete because I, I loved being an athlete. But I started realizing over time that the work I was doing at BuzzFeed was in a way reaching a larger audience than my work as a pro cyclist. For a long time, I really wanted to help inspire other young women to to go and pursue their dreams and do the impossible. And I thought that that might look like being a, a successful cyclist and therefore being a role model to other women. And so I worked really hard on that. And then I also realized that at BuzzFeed, I could reach a larger audience. So why not combine those things? And deciding to not be a professional cyclist anymore was one of the toughest decisions I've ever had to make because it was like giving up a part of myself that I had that I had um, been with intimately every single day of my life for four years from, you know, like from going to nationals, winning nationals, getting the contract every single day, waking up, getting on my bike. There's a community associated with cycling and I felt like I was losing all of that. But I'm really glad that I did it because then that sort of allowed me to start making these videos where I was pushing myself to the limit physically a bit more. So then I started making videos with my coworker Jordan, who was also an athlete, an amazing athlete. And we we kind of like made this list of what are the craziest things we could do on YouTube. So we we did everything from training with an MMA fighter to then doing an actual fight, like an actual real fight, guys. And Garrett was there. Um, I trained for a marathon in 10 weeks. We trained with Cirque du Soleil performers. We did lots of different things, really just pushing ourselves physically. And, you know, like a lot of people who work at BuzzFeed, I sort of reached this point where I was like, I wonder if I could do this on my own. And so then I made the terrifying choice to leave and it's a really hard choice to make because you have a paycheck in a way you like stability benefits the community of people there is amazing it feels like college it it was like every friday was a party and we would go out to a bar together and when you make the jump from something like buzzfeed to your own channel you have no gauge on what percentage of those viewers would hop ship and come watch your content you don't know if it's five percent you know ten percent fifteen percent how many of those people are going to like you enough to want to 
subscribe to a channel solely based on you. It's just a number, that that figure, that, that percentage, you just don't know what it is. So that's a really scary thing to, to count on. Yes, it was so scary. <laughs> um, I remember that Jordan and I put in our two weeks on the same day. And I remember feeling free and terrified at the same time because I felt like this was the first decision I'd ever made just for myself. I didn't even tell my family I was quitting until after I did it. (laughs) And the reason I felt like this was the first big choice I'd made for myself was because I felt like all of the other choices I had made were to fulfill some sort of idea of a path to success. So in high school, when I was doing science fair and and doing all these crazy activities to try and build my resume to get into a good college, and then in college, doing lots of different internships so that I could have a good chance of getting a high-paying job right after college, and even going to BuzzFeed, while that was like a creative personal decision, it's a safer choice than someone going off and just starting their own YouTube channel from scratch. Everything I've done has been, everything I've done in my life I feel has been very procedural um, until then. And in fact, leading up to that moment, in the 12 months before I left BuzzFeed, I sort of said to myself, I wonder if I could do this on my own, but I need to be prepared for the worst. So being the procedural person that I am I prepared for the worst my life coach Jody actually taught me this and and I thought it was really really helpful was to imagine the worst that could happen and then make a plan for that so the way I responded to that was I need to be prepared for nobody comes to my channel it's not successful and I have to get a job somewhere else or I don't know what I'm going to do so what I did was I moved into a studio apartment and lived on a super, super tight budget for an entire year. An entire year of, I never went out. If I went to a bar, I would never get anything to drink. Apologies to all the Los Angeles bars. <laughs> um, I I was super, I, I, and another reason I didn't drink was because I didn't want to pay for Uber. So I would drive everywhere. I, um, y- you know, never traveled never went on vacation, never ate out really. Um, I think the most that I did was, you know, like once a month I would go to the movies. That's pretty much it. And I did that because I was trying to not only grow capital and a bit of a savings for me to be on my own, but also imagine and get used to if, if, if this is what my life is going to be like, if I have an unsuccessful YouTube channel, then I'm going to get comfortable with it. And I did. I became very comfortable um, in that lifestyle. So that when I left, I had, I want to say, depending on how much I stretched it, like three to six months of savings um, to live off to really pursue my channel. And I, I, I really encourage that. I think there's a lot of promotion of quit your job, pursue your dreams, and everything will be great. 
And I think that there's a way to prepare smartly for that. I encourage everyone to pursue their dreams and go after what they want. But there's also a way to be really prepared for that. And I'm glad that I did that. So this is an important moment because fitting in category three, which is having success on one platform and then uh, bringing those followers to a new platform starting at nothing, um, we weren't just going to say or you weren't just going to say, hey, let's just start a channel and start uploading videos and I hope it works out. There was a plan. There was a strategy involved. So you made a battle strategy to ensure optimal success for when you launched your channel. Part of that was uh, familiarizing yourself with a possible lifestyle that you will be living if it is unsuccessful. But what did you do to ensure success with the initial launch of the channel? What were you, did you create a backlog of videos? Did you know exactly what four or five big videos you were going to make that you knew were going to perform well? I want to know how, I want to see what from this story can be applicable to anybody watching, hoping to start their own YouTube channel, start their own creative creative, uh, successes or endeavors. So for you, what was that strategy? When I left and launched my channel, I made sure to have a couple videos pre-filmed that I believed, based on my education at BuzzFeed, would perform well at that time. So not only were they things that I believed would just perform well in general, but they were easy to execute, they were low budget, and they were also specific to things that I love and enjoy. So I did some videos where I reviewed other celebrities' workouts. I did a video where I tried the raw vegan diet. You did a lot of Starbucks drinks reviews. I did a lot of... My first... What's surprising is my first big video was a video of me reviewing the it was the, the rainbow. I think the dragon one the was The dragon very frappuccino. Successful. Yeah. So back in... I guess this was 20... 2018? The world 2017? was a time. 2017. There was a time in 2017 when Starbucks was just releasing all these crazy frappuccinos. So I thought, oh, this is a, you know, a fun video to make. Easy, topical. Taste tests do well. It costs $4 to make because I can just go buy a frappuccino. But I decided to edit it in like a funny, unique way to make it really over the top. And I just uploaded it because I thought it was funny and interesting and you know um so that video actually ended up getting a couple hundred thousand views and my channel grew from that there's something to say about the strategy of making a lot of different sorts of kind of content which and i would say is phase one sticks. this is this is so what we're going to talk about here is the different phases of the channel and how we grew to two million subscribers phase one here was just like garrett said looking at the landscape of youtube what does well, making our own spin on it, and trying everything. Trying a bunch of things and seeing what sticks. And admittedly, that is a strategy that BuzzFeed uses all the time. They BuzzFeed makes so, so many, many different types of videos. They see what works, and then from there, they develop bigger shows because then you know that's what the audience wants. So I was kind of doing that with my own flavor. And I wanted to just sort of build out the channel a little bit because I knew, and this was a while ago, 
that if I made a video why I left BuzzFeed, it would hopefully, likely perform really well. At the time, why I left BuzzFeed was essentially a genre of video on the platform. A lot of BuzzFeeders were leaving the platform, starting their own channel, and people were really invested in why they were leaving, what their story was, they wanted to continue following them on their own platforms, whatever. So we knew if we could make a why I left BuzzFeed, it should perform well. Uh, the thing is, though, we did not, uh, we have kind of a rule with how we make videos is that anything that we make can't be derivative, it must be additive. Because if it's derivative, the video doesn't need to exist, it already exists. If it's additive, we are adding something new to one-up it, to create, to make it new and exciting and original. And that's how we make all of our content. So the way that we did that was a lot of people were making YLF BuzzFeed videos with them sitting on the couch, telling their story, and what... And there's nothing wrong with yeah, that. Yeah, I think it's great. But we knew if we were going to have... This was like the end of the YLF BuzzFeed trend. We knew we had to do something bigger or different. It was almost like a sub meme that people were just annoyed with the videos altogether. I think one of the big ones that I think were incredibly additive were Chris Re was Chris Reinecker's YLF BuzzFeed video. Incredible production all around. That is, I love that video. And I think that started showing people the importance of being additive and not derivative. Um, and so we wanted, you know, we were already planning on doing something similar. So we had the idea of Michelle was doing a lot of uh, action, superhero uh, related content at BuzzFeed before she had left. I had this amazing opportunity to train with the Marvel stunt team. So I was sort of fresh off of that and also just realizing separately of YouTube that action, acting and performance was something I was really passionate about. So we decided to make Why Love BuzzFeed in the form of a superhero action trailer. And that was our version of making it additive instead of derivative. Telling the story of why I left, but in a campy Marvel superhero style tr movie trailer. And this was the first time that Garrett and I worked together. Yeah, so I directed that video um, and wrote it with Michelle. And that was our first creative collaborative experience because up until then we knew each other um because kevin mutual friends yes kevin worked at buzzfeed also and you guys were roommates yeah so why love buzzfeed our that video for us was our version of you know taking what's topical what's doing well putting our own spin on it making it additive and then hopefully it could you know spark some some sort of fire or and, and have it spread and when we made that video and posted it we we hit trending with that video it got a million views in a day got a million views in a day uh phil defranco covered it on on his show which was really cool and it, it worked it did exactly what we had planned it to do but the important thing is is that that little tiny bit of success was completely planned Yes. It was very strategic. It was very surgical. It was very intentional. And not only that, but I I really wanted to make it feel like a separation of my work at BuzzFeed as well and emulate the things I wanted in my professional life outside of YouTube, such as action work, stunts, action acting. 
So I knew, okay, if this video is going to get a lot of views, then it'll probably be on my most popular videos at the top for a while. And if a casting director comes to my page, I want them to click on that and see that I can move and perform and do all of those kinds of things, even in the context of a video that seemingly has nothing to do with it. So sort of like a double whammy for us, which was fun. Double whammy rib Sammy. That was oh. a double whammy rib Sammy was the okay. name of one of these pretty much very disgusting food options at my high school cafeteria. So if you're watching from my high school, double whammy rib Sammy, do they still have those? Great. <laughs> Let's talk about school so, lunches. No. <laughs> All right. So that video. Did you and have that Mexican pizza in high school? We had something called Mexican pizza. Yeah, we did too. It's so mm. gross. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. This is a this is a totally legal detour. Okay. Allow this tangent. Mexican pizzas were these like thin pieces of like pizza bread that were cut in like hexagons, I think. And they had like really shitty meat on it and shitty cheese on it. But for some reason I always got a double order of it and I fucking love that stuff loved it and I, you can't buy it anywhere because I looked this up you can't buy those foods si like in singles because they're made in bulk for high schools so the only way I realized as an adult that I could get my hand on this nostalgic Mexican pizza is buying in bulk and I think like around 2,500 like 2,500 Mexican pizzas was the lowest amount of pizzas I could purchase. And I obviously don't have anywhere to store 2,500 Mexican pizzas in a freezer, nor do I want to eat 2,500 Mexican pizzas. So I never ended up buying them, and I never had one again. I've been wanting one for so long. If anyone has a secret to get me a shitty high school lunch Mexican pizza I will be forever in your debt so that was phase one of the channel phase one. phase one was a lot of experimentation it was a lot of pre-planned things it was a lot of using the knowledge that I had learned at BuzzFeed phase two of the channel What's phase two? Phase two of the channel was the MK Ultra phase. MK Ultra, I like MK Ultra. We made that show. So MK Ultra, for those of you who don't know, was a series on the channel wherein Our each first episode, big series. first big series, each episode, I chose a different superhero to train like for a period of time. It was challenge accepted, except only superheroes instead yes. of like jobs and professions. And then at the end of the training period, such as if I trained for Spider, trained like Spider-Man for a month, at the end of that training period, we would put together a small short film wherein I would perform as the superhero character, giving it my own spin. And the cool thing about this was we did everything from Spider-Man to Batman to Ray from Star Wars. And if you watch all of the short films, they are actually interconnected and have a through storyline, just like a season of television, but in these little short short films. That was a fun way for us to flex our narrative muscles, our, yes. um, our short film. Yes. Uh, At the time, I, I wanted more acting material, but we also knew that, you know, 
unscripted often performs better than scripted on YouTube. So we are trying to hit both markets by including both in one. And we would also strategically time each episode to release when a specific movie or TV show would come out. So for example, that summer, the the first Spider-Man film came out. So we released Spider-Man the day of that. Game of Thrones was coming out that summer. So we released I Trained Like Arya Stark the same day as that. All of these things were super strategic. Again, using knowledge that I had at BuzzFeed. And one of the things I learned there was just paying attention to trending topics. And But to be honest, some of those episodes worked and some of them didn't. They did. Some videos that ha- were timed up with a release didn't even perform well. Uh, so, you know, a lot of this is trial and error. It wasn't like, oh, we hit success with why I left BuzzFeed and then it, everything was just falling into place. We are still trial and erroring through this entire journey even now we're still dealing with that we are and then amidst mk ultra we were still doing lots of videos that were easier to produce um lower lower cost easier to edit just quick to upload and again some of those did very well and some of those didn't Towards the end of this phase was sort of the part when I I felt like in some ways I had separated myself from the work I did at BuzzFeed, such as MKUltra, I'm so, so proud of. Um, but then there were all these other random videos and I felt like the channel was lacking a bit of focus. Admittedly, when we did the Why I Left BuzzFeed video, just to give you guys a sort of a, uh, a metric scope on how things were going, when we left Why I Left BuzzFeed, I think about 400,000, we gained 400,000 subscribers around that time. Mm-hmm. Huge push. I mean, when you think about it now, that's almost a quarter of the audience that we have at this time. So huge push in the beginning. Um, we had like little bumps throughout with these these MK Ultra videos and, and some of these random spa videos I did. Um, but kind of when we got to the end of that, I was proud of MK Ultra. But I wasn't super proud of these other random videos I did in the middle. And I realized that I had had retained this mindset that I've had honestly my entire life, but was also big at BuzzFeed where at BuzzFeed, we I, I was required to produce end to end, start to finish, editing everything, six unique videos per month. And that's a huge, huge volume output. And I realized that I was continuing to try to uphold that release schedule and in doing so there was a lot of content I was proud of some content I was surprised did well and then a bunch of content that I just was like is this what I want on my resume so I started thinking more critically about what do I want on my resume and also what can we learn and how does this perform well which brings us to phase three Ooh, phase three what's phase three phase three Oh, sorry. One other thing I want to say about phase two. A lot of great things were learned in phase two because this was the first time I was spending a lot of money on the channel. After the initial success of the channel in phase one, we were getting brand deals. So phase two with MK Ultra, we were hiring crews of 20 to 30 people to pull off these stunt scenes. Um, I really learned there how to work with a large crew how to operate on a set, how to um, do do just random business things like paying people 
paying lots of people at the same time, planning financially for all of that. Those were all things that were important lessons from phase two. Phase two was interesting. It was the first time we saw notoriety within some of the stuff that we were making. MKUltra was nominated for a streamy. So it was interesting finally feeling like we were a part of this bigger community in a small way. Um, phase two is, again, still a lot of trial and error. But the biggest problem that we had with phase two is that at the end of it, even though we had MKUltra, we learned that we accidentally built a core our core audience who was a fan of these more BuzzFeed-esque videos. And by that, I mean like you do trying the spa stuff, the Starbucks drinks, those like I tried this whatever random thing. Those are and those were all born out of the principle of make videos that perform well. It wasn't born out of make things that matter to me. Right. And some and of them well. and some of them were interesting to you, but at the end of it when you really broke it down like did you really want to try sex dust or steam your vagina? No. So those were all <laughs> videos that were being done because they we thought that like they had to be done to up, to grow the channel. To grow the channel. And here is the issue with that. That's not content we want to be making for the rest of our lives. And we It's also content that I don't that I that I when I, when people think of my channel, there were people who were okay, this is so embarrassing, but there were people who are recognizing me like, Oh, I remember you, you're that Starbucks drink girl. And I didn't want to be known for that. I wanted to be known as you're the girl who's doing the superhero content. You're and, the girl doing all this cool stuff. And nobody wants your top video on the channel to be I got my vagina steamed. No. There's nothing wrong with getting your vagina steamed, but that's not an easy It's not a representation of the breadth be. and depth and level of videos we could make. So our core audience was now into those videos and we realized we needed to pivot into getting our core audience excited about the content we did want to make long term. For us, those are uh, you know, short form documentaries and by short form I mean for in the traditional sense on youtube i guess they're long form they're like 35 um, they're like minutes. 30 35 minutes <laughs> but we wanted to make more in-depth videos on i mean essentially what challenge accepted was challenge accepted was our baby and this is a show yes, we're, we're entering phase three now. phase three is challenge accepted so at the end of phase two we these aren't planned phases by the way this is just like in hindsight we're recognizing oh yeah, this is it, how it the sounds like grew. we're kevin feige at marvel with like yeah. phase one of marvel phase two and by phase four we're gonna hit them with avengers yeah, Endgame, exactly and, or the new <laughs> okay, avengers okay. so we're not we that hit good. the end of mk ultra we finished season one we're we're nominated for streamy and we kind of reached this point where we had run out of superheroes to no, train we didn't. like we didn't well we didn't run out but the videos weren't performing as well it sort of felt like the same storyline every time no it was because it was too expensive okay well they weren't mk ultra is expensive mk ultra was and very not expensive they weren't getting as many views like the views they were getting weren't worth the price tag so yes. we needed to it make was a change. in the beginning and i mean and and also I felt like we had sort of personally at least speaking for me gotten what I wanted out of them. We had made 10 cinematic shorts in the span of 6 months. We got to the point where we didn't want to make any more just to continue growing the channel 
we wanted to make them only if we wanted to make them. And we got to this point where, yeah, we finished season one. We were really happy with how it turned out. We're obviously willing to make more, but we didn't have, we didn't have like hard concrete inspiration for a few more episodes. We're like, you know what? This felt good. And it was getting too expensive. Honestly, you, you, I remember you came to me and were like, I am too stressed out making these. They take too much time. It's like I give all of my income to this project that like might not even perform well. And it was so much work for you. That's why it, that's why it initially stopped. It was too much. It was too much for just, remember at the time of MKUltra, it was Michelle and like solely Michelle. Everyone else was freelance. So I was freelance. Our editors were freelance. And a we different editor, time, a different editor cut a, every 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 episode of MKUltra was cut by a different editor. So, you know, this was all freelance. It was there was no core team. It this was, was just me working you. out of my studio apartment. The and one it, that I mentioned earlier. It was, was still there. A lot of stress, pressure to you know, for one person to bear running that entire show. And when you look at TV shows, they have, you know, they have a uh, a band of producers and writers and <laughs> directors and an entire team put in place to make this show happen. And MK Ultra was you and a couple of people that you are hiring for freelance. Mm-hmm. And that was a really hard thing to sustainably continue. What I will say is an applicable learning from phase two was the idea of in a way mk ultra was our passion project and we were growing that so that we had proof of being able to do what we wanted to do in the traditional and world we and tr- professionally and we we're trying to build that audience yes with the and channel. then at the same time we were making these more buzzfeed like videos to to keep the income and to to to, to to grow so that I guess the applicable learning there is to do you know you may if you're if you're pursuing YouTube find yourself in a position where you are doing videos that maybe you're not the most passionate about but that work on the channel but don't forget to do those passion projects too because those are even more important in in your professional life and what I really liked about phase two was it was sort of the first time that I wasn't just gonna go on an audition for a superhero show and say I know I can do this we had physical proof we did it all ourselves we weren't waiting for Hollywood to green light some opportunity for you to direct an action film and for me to get to act in an action film we just said we're gonna do it ourselves and that's what I really appreciated about MK Ultra, and it gave me this sense of I can do it. And that's really important for anybody on their own YouTube channel. If you are waiting for the opportunity, then someone else is not, and they're going for it. So, if you want to, if you if you're if you're considering doing acting or doing directing, but you're concerned that you don't that that you want to wait for that perfect Hollywood opportunity. We're, we're out of that era. You can do it yourself. And that's what I really appreciated about phase two. So now phase three is challenge accepted. All and right. challenge accepted was our answer to how can we make a cheaper version of something of the quality of MKUltra? And at the time, challenge accepted was cheaper. 
Now it's now more it's expensive. <laughs> now it's not. Now it's not. But at the time, it was cheaper. And the idea was, as the audience grows, we can then increase the budgets per challenge accepted episode as we continue. It started with me wanting to do a video. I really wanted to do a video exploring Victoria's Secret as a brand and training like one of the models because they are so heralded in our community and society. And it was very trendy at the time, back in 2018. I think that was 2018. Oh my God, I don't, I don't even know. Um, so I found a trainer, Steve Zim. He's awesome. And he, he's trained Victoria's Secret models before. And he trained me like a Victoria's Secret model for five weeks. I did a photo shoot and everything. And we, we just uploaded that video. Um, because we had done so many other training-like videos, I had no idea how it performed. And I think in the first week, this was really unique. In the first week, it got probably 200,000 views. And about a week and a half after upload, it just skyrocketed out of nowhere. This I don't was, know why. The YouTube algorithm is wild west. This was our first big successful video since Why I Love BuzzFeed. It was a year later. So it was Why I Love BuzzFeed, later. then a year of like every once in a while a video will like surprise us, but never hit as many views as Why I Love BuzzFeed. A year later, I Train Like a Victoria's Secret model comes out and we finally have hit the level of which our first big hit, you know, happened. Um, not even MKUltra got up there like encounter got close but not as much as the victoria's secret video so then we were thinking okay there's we something found here. a new format formula that works can we keep doing this making it additive every time the problem with mk ultra it, even though it's different heroes each time and we were always trying to like to find new aspects of heroes or characters different training styles it ended up being the same it started becoming derivative by the end like oh we're saying the same episode every time with just different flavor the same story Diff same story with a different flavor different hero whatever what we found was okay with the challenge accepted we have this format and now we need to make that additive each time. And the best way we found to do that was to completely change the profession, community, or lifestyle that the episode focuses on. Right. So we started with Victoria's Secret. It did well. And then we started thinking, I wonder if there are other communities we could explore and see what happens. So then we went to, we did voice acting. We did training like a professional chef pop singer beauty pageant was a really cool episode because it was sort of like the beginning of phase four we really went hard on investigating the history of beauty pageants learning more about the ins and outs and in that episode we were allowed to showcase a lot of the behind the scenes so i feel like in phase four of the channel that's what we we're really striving for that additive level of increased production value really going hard, uh, making sure that every aspect of all of the episodes hits home in terms of storytelling, editing, sound design, quality of, of everything. It's that increased level of quality where, where it almost feels like you're watching television. When you say quality, it's not just uh, technical quality. Yeah, not like, oh, the cameras are nicer. Which is also true, but I, I want to stress that it's also quality of story. Quality, quality of editing, sound of design, all of those things. Because, um, at the end of the day, YouTube is a platform of storytelling, and I consider myself a storyteller first and foremost. Um, and 
Challenge Accepted gave us a way to tell very interesting, important stories week after week that never felt derivative and that always felt additive. And every episode we made, we got to make it a little bit more in-depth and make it a little bit bigger, which is why we got to do NASA, FBI, Marines, etc. Um, so we hope to continue that level of uh, storytelling and with that progression as you know the channel continues because we're realizing what the numbers are showing that people like those videos and now because we hard pivoted to challenge accepted the core audience of the channel now are fans of challenge accepted if we started making you know the old videos that used to perform well on the channel they would not perform as well anymore every once in a while we have an idea that's like a little similar to those old videos but now that with their higher increased production value maybe they're more um they're more appealing to our core audience, but our core audience now is challenge accepted, which is great because that is a show that I would want to be making or I'd want to watch myself for the rest of my life. I could I could make that show at least for another few years and feel creatively fulfilled. And I think that's a big important thing to note is that you should be striving to make content that is fulfilling to you um, at your core because if, if it's not then who are you making it for? And, and at the end of the day, just getting a bunch of views will not feel satisfying to you or In the same way you. that those random videos we made performed really well. And sure, there's like a nice little ego boost when a video hits a million views, but... but you're not really fulfilled yeah, making those. Yeah, and, and I would... Yeah, like... And that that bar, that threshold of what is fulfilling... You know, that's different for everybody. People can be fulfilled making those kinds of videos, and there's nothing wrong with that. But in terms of what is fulfilling to us, we needed more of a of a story, more uh, more depth in it. And so that's kind of what we latched onto, and that's why we're so happy that we were able to pivot our core audience to people who would enjoy the same sort of things that we want to make. Yeah, and throughout this entire time, a lot of our successes, wins, and learnings are because Garrett and I come from such unique backgrounds. Throughout this entire time, I was improving as a producer. I would say that out of all the, the skill sets I have, hosting and producing is my strongest skill set. And, um, you know, like, as you are growing, if, if you're interested in, in doing this, when you do one thing, doing it again, it becomes easier. It just Just like working out. Making videos is the same thing. Each rep is a video. And with that, in the same way, that also gives us different levels of access. Now that we worked with the Marines, we were able to work with NASA. And when we worked with NASA, we were able to work with San Diego Police Department and then the FBI. So as you grow and as you hone in on what you're good at and what you love to do, other people will be open to working with you and collaborating. So I know a lot of this advice was more theoretical and abstract rather than like hard practical advice. Why don't we give some hard practical advice? I guess in short, in some closing statements, some closing advice, I would say find the thing that you love the most and that makes you stand out and go with that. Um, don't do something just because you think it's going to get views. Because when you get to a point in your career when you want to do something else, it's going to be harder to pivot to that. So I think it's a better move to take the longer route, to take the harder route, to really pursue what you want to do. With that, 
um, be open to your perception of success and what you want to do changing. I think if you had asked me three years ago when we started the channel what I would love the channel to look like, it would be very different from what we have now, but I love what we have now way more. There have been times when we have had the opportunity on the channel to choose I would say like an easier route, doing easier videos that might get more views. And we have actively chosen to not do that because we want to be known for doing Challenge Accepted, not for doing the other lesser videos that again may get more views. So do the thing that you want to be known for. Do the thing that you want to be on your resume so that should you decide to laterally or upwardly move to a different part of the industry or use your YouTube channel as your resume, make it your resume. So think critically about everything you're uploading. And again, that desire or that standard is different from everybody. Yeah. And the videos that we pivoted away from are, vid are perfectly fine videos to make if they that's are. what's fulfilling to you. It is. You know, you just got to find what that is. And, you know, we didn't develop that until it took us a, a couple years to develop what that was for us. And then we made a plan for it and then attacked it. So what I think we should do is next week, we should talk about, you know, what an average day is like for you as a creator and what really goes on as a creator, how many emails, dealing with management, all those different things. And then furthermore, we can discuss how we make a video from beginning to end and mm -hmm. what that looks like from pre-production to the moment we hit upload on a computer, even past that, even promotion for an episode after it's launched. I think that could be uh, really fascinating. Um, so if you're interested in that, you know, tune in next week and uh, yeah. I really enjoyed this discussion. It was fun to just reminisce on everything. It makes me so thankful, especially we just hit 2 million subscribers. Thank you guys so much It's to wild everyone. to think that Everything in my life has led to me wearing Nicholas Cage oh, yes. on a podcast. Oh, my God. Thank you guys so much for watching. As always, shout out to my boy, Kevin Svensson. Yep. And uh, have a great day. If you guys are new here, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review or comment below. We are so thankful to have you. And if you made it to this end of this episode, congratulations. Mission accomplished. We'll see you next week. Also, is this a good shirt or is it, I know it's ugly, but like, is it Tell funny us. ugly or is it like ugly? Like, stop it. I'm telling you guys, like if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you might just want to go to YouTube just to, to, to see this. In fact, vote down below, yay or nay. Should I wear this for every episode? Because I could be into that. Bye. See ya.